I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and this is the 90th episode of the podcast where I pick one famous day from history and tell you what the headlines had to say about it at the time. Then I search through other newspapers from the same day and tell you what else was making headlines. Sometimes the stories are about murder or other crime. Sometimes they are about romance. And sometimes they're just funny. But all of them share the fact that they happened at the same time of some of history's biggest moments. Today's date is a little bit different because it's actually about something that went on for years, almost a decade. But there was one day that stood out a bit more than some of the other bad days from that time. This date is sometimes referred to as Black Sunday, but it has nothing to do with the Munich Massacre like the movie with the same name. Instead, this Black Sunday refers to April 14, 1935, in the United States. The next day, April 15, 1935, newspapers printed headlines with the depressing news. The headline from the Sepulpa Herald out of Sepulpa, Oklahoma said, Dust plagues five states in stinging blast. During the 1930s, the states making up the southern part of the Great Plains spent years fighting the dust storms and lack of rain that ruined crops and lives in an area that became known as the Dust Bowl. When the Great Depression struck and the price of wheat dropped, People thought the best way to get back on their feet would be to cultivate more land and sell more crops. They began digging up all of the grassland and planting more and more crops. But, to add insult to injury, the 1930s were also marked by a severe drought. Without all of the roots of the prairie grasses to hold the soil in place and no water to pack it down, it all began to blow away. Crops failed. Livestock died. Families fell apart. In just a few years' time, 35 million acres of what used to be farmland had become useless land. 125 million more acres were fading fast. During those years, there were many horrible storms. The sky would be dark for days, and dirt had to be moved away from homes with shovels. Many people developed what was called dust pneumonia from breathing it all in. No matter how hard people tried to seal off their homes, the dirt managed to find its way inside. The worst of the storms came on Black Sunday. It was estimated that 3 million tons of topsoil was blown out of Kansas, Colorado, Texas, Oklahoma, and New Mexico, and many people died that day. In one Kansas town, the temperature dropped from 84 degrees Fahrenheit to 27 degrees Fahrenheit by the time the storm was over the next day. It was described as a black blizzard, and it was after Black Sunday that the Associated Press started referring to the area as the Dust Bowl, and it soon caught on everywhere. Hundreds of thousands of people began migrating out of the area, and they became known as Okies. A majority of them moved to California, and there are quite a few books written about this, including things like The Grapes of Wrath, and one I enjoyed that came out recently called The Four Winds. Because the Dust Bowl years spanned almost an entire decade, there is a lot that can be said about the subject, but that's not what this podcast is supposed to be about. So I'll end this introduction by saying that singer Woody Guthrie 
told the story of Black Sunday in a ballad he wrote, and it's worth a listen. I'll post a link to that song in the additional history headlines you probably miss Facebook group, and you can hear it for yourself. It tells the whole story. And now, it's time to dust off our boots and see what else was being printed on April 15, 1935, in the Despel States. For my first additional history story of the day, I'm taking a headline from the April 15, 1935 issue of the Kilgore News out of Kilgore, Texas. The front page of this newspaper was filled with horrible and disturbing stories. Usually, a newspaper has one or two. But on this day, there were at least four right on the front page. The headline I chose was far and away the biggest one, and it was much bigger than the headline talking about the previous day's dust storm. This headline says, Boy Tells of Shooting, Burning Parents. Yeah, you can probably tell just by the headline that this is not going to be a pretty story. This story takes place in Mutual, Oklahoma. It's a very small town in northwestern Oklahoma, up near the Panhandle. Nowadays, there are fewer than 100 people that live there. And in the 1930s, it wasn't much different, with just under 200 people. It's a very rural area, and in the 30s, it was filled with farmland, and was the area of the Dust Bowl and big dust storms. One of the families that lived near Mutual was the John Bully family. He and his wife had lived in that area for 15 years, and everyone knew them. They had one son named Russell. He was 18 years old, but he'd been living away from home for the past year while he was attending the Alva Teachers College. Rumors had been starting to spread through the area that the bullies were having some financial struggles. If I had to guess, I'd say that most of the farmers in the area were struggling financially. After all, it was the years of the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression. One day, around 8.30 at night, a man named Otis Donnelly decided to visit the John Bully family farm near him. Otis had a sick calf back on his own farm and went to John Bully to see if he could get some medication to help the calf. But when Otis pulled up to the Bully farm, his sick cow was the last thing on his mind. You see, the Bully home was on fire. Otis quickly checked and noticed that the garage door was open and there wasn't a car inside. He knew that meant the bullies weren't at home. Now, these were the days when communication with emergency personnel wasn't easy, and it was especially hard if you lived in a rural area. I'm not sure if there even was a fire station anywhere in the area. Without wasting much time, knowing the bullies were away, Otis turned his car around and took off as fast as he could go to find someone to help him put out the fire. The first house he got to was that of his uncle, Hugh Donnelly. Otis woke him up, told him what was going on, and then Hugh, who apparently had a telephone, hurried and called the town of Mutual. All of the farmers in the area started calling around to each other. Some of them looked out and could see the flames from their own properties. Everyone hurried over to the bully home as fast as they could, hoping to stop the fire before it took everything. The question on everyone's mind was, where are the bullies? Everyone knew that as soon as they got back, they were going to be devastated at the loss. You see, this wasn't the first time they'd had a house fire. About five years earlier, another mysterious fire had burned the bully's house down, right off the same foundation. To lose one house to a fire is terrible, but to have it happen twice is almost unheard of. 
Anyway, as the neighbors watched the flames, the wind shifted and the flames aimed toward the gathering crowd. That's when those present said they knew immediately that something wasn't right. The smell coming from the burning house was the scent of human flesh. The onlookers wasted no time and formed a bucket brigade, throwing as much water on the home as they could. As soon as one of the men saw a break in the flames, he pushed his way into the burning house. But he was only in there for a moment before he came back out, gasping for breath as he choked on the smoke. He'd been in there long enough to confirm the suspicions, though. He'd seen two bodies in the flames. At 10 o'clock that night, about an hour and a half after Otis Donnelly first reported the fire, the sheriff and the undertakers arrived on the farm. By this point, the house was a complete loss and was just a smoldering pile of burned wood. Just like they'd feared, two bodies were found inside, Mr. and Mrs. Bully. But there was something else they found in the house that they weren't expecting. Next to Mr. Bully's body was a shotgun. There was an empty cartridge inside, and it was pointed towards Mrs. Bully's body. While the undertaker was taking the bodies to his office, another neighbor decided to go look for the couple's son. He'd been visiting during a school break, and they figured he must have been the one to take the car that night. The first stop the neighbor made was at the Bostwick home. He knew that Russell had been hanging out with their 17-year-old daughter, Rosalie, and if he wasn't at home, there was a good chance he might be with her. And yes, his assumptions were correct. Rosalie's father told him that the two had gone to pick up another friend, and then they were going to drive to the town of Woodward to see a movie. The neighbor then went to that second friend's house, and there was the Bully family car. Russell was just returning from the movie with the friend's family. The neighbor stopped him and said, Your house burned, and your father and mother burned with it. But the neighbor didn't stop there. He accused Russell of starting the fire and told him that the neighbors thought Russell had been the one to start it too. Russell's reaction was a bit hysterical. He seemed upset about the death of his parents and insisted he had nothing to do with their deaths or the fire. The next day, another announcement was made, and that one was a bit shocking. The coroner had finished his examination and said that the cause of death wasn't the fire. Both Mr. and Mrs. Bully had been shot to death before their bodies burned. It was thought that Mr. Bully died instantly, judging by the location of the bullet. But Mrs. Bully most likely suffered and didn't die a quick death. People continued to accuse Russell of the murders, and when questioned, it seemed that he was preoccupied with details a grieving son wouldn't be thinking of, and he became very defensive when asked certain questions. He insisted that he'd spend the morning taking care of their cattle, and then he'd cut some wood, and then he'd gone out and shot some crows, and when he was done with that, he took the gun back inside and put it by the kitchen door, the same place it always was in their home. He couldn't remember if he'd left a discharge cell in the gun, but figured it was possible. He'd gotten sidetracked when his mom called for him to help her roll a quilt she was making. Then, at around 5 o'clock that night, he helped his father with the evening chores. They made milk, and they visited with a woman who came to borrow a book. And when everything was done, he took a bath, put on some clean clothes, and ate his supper. His father asked him if he had any money, and when he said he didn't, his father gave him $2, and he left to go hang out with his friends. The local sheriffs decided to investigate what type of motive Russell might have had to kill his own parents, and they really couldn't come up with anything. 
They asked Rosalie and her parents, and everyone who'd seen Russell that night, how he'd been behaving, and they all said that he seemed completely normal, although he did fall asleep while they were driving back from the movie. Nothing sent up any warning flags. The sheriff then decided to look into the theory that John Bully had been the one to shoot his wife, and that he'd then turned the gun on himself in a murder-suicide. The more they looked into this theory, though, the less it made sense. They couldn't figure out how John could have shot himself with that type of gun in that area on his body. But then the sheriff made a huge discovery. He found a pocket watch in the ruins of the house, near where John Bully's body had been, and the watch had been stopped at 6.30 p.m. Russell said that he hadn't left the farmhouse until 7 p.m. The watch meant he would have still been home when his parents were shot. The second thing the sheriff noticed was that the fire started somewhere near the bullies' bodies, as if it was the bodies that started the fire in the house. Well, the relatives of John and his wife decided they didn't want the investigation to continue, and they wanted the matter to be hushed up and swept under the rug. After all, they didn't want the bully name to get a bad reputation. Don't worry, though, the sheriff didn't give in to their requests. But as time went on and answers weren't given... One of the neighbors who'd been there the night of the fire was assigned to be an administrator of the bully's property and to be the guardian of Russell. I have to admit, I thought that part was a bit odd. After all, Russell was already 18 at this point, and he'd already lived away at school. Anyway, Russell filed the paperwork to claim a $1,000 life insurance policy on his father. When a month and a half passed without any movement or arrest in the case, the state crime investigator was sent to the area to offer his assistance. As a side note, the dust storms were so bad when the investigator arrived that he had to stay inside for three days before he could actually go out and do any investigating. The investigator insisted they visit the home of Russell's girlfriend, Rosalie Bostwick, first. And he apparently knew all the right questions to ask because here's how it all went down. He said, Now, Rosalie... If Russell told you he killed his mother and father, you wouldn't believe him, would you? No, sir, I sure wouldn't, she said. But he did tell you he killed his father and mother, didn't he, Rosalie? He continued quietly. She gasped. Yes, he did. And then everything came flooding out of the poor girl. She said that she'd been trying to break up with him for weeks, but after he told her that he had been the one to kill his parents, she was afraid for her own life. With the help of Rosalie, Russell Bully was arrested for the murder of his parents the day before the big dust storm rolled in on Black Sunday. At first, Russell continued to insist he was innocent, but then he finally gave in and confessed. He didn't give an explanation, but said that after his chores were done, he shot his father, and then he immediately shot his mother too. Then he went outside by their tractor and got a gallon bucket of old gasoline and dumped the gasoline around the bedroom and kitchen area and lit a match. Then he got in the car and drove away. Everything else that happened that night, like going to the movie with friends, had been exactly like he'd said the night of the fire. Russell did say that his parents had money buried in their storm shed because they didn't believe in banks which isn't surprising considering this was just a few years after the stock market crash of 1929. But when he and his uncle went looking for it, they only found about $50. 
The police officers, hearing about this, decided to go back out to the farmhouse and look around. And they found a gallon-sized bucket filled with stocks and bonds. A value on the items was never given, though. So why did Russell kill his parents? As the police dug and dug and dug, they finally came up with something that seemed like it might be right. Russell had wanted to marry Rosalie, and his parents had objected violently to that desire. I don't know why. Witnesses started to come out saying that they'd even seen Russell fight with his parents about using their car, and another witness said they saw him hit his father and pull his hair. During Russell's trial that September, the defense insisted that the evidence had been taken out of context, and Russell had been coerced into signing a confession against his will. The prosecution insisted that the evidence and witnesses didn't lie. The jury deliberated for a long time, and when they finally came back, it was announced that they were deadlocked. They had taken six different votes, and nobody was changing their minds. Russell Bully was let out on bond and sent to live with an aunt in Denver, Colorado, until another trial could begin the next year. The second trial once again ended without a conviction. It was a mistrial. You see, they discovered that one of the jurors had been examined at the Oklahoma State Hospital for the insane. Finally, the April 14, 1936 edition of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram reported that Russell's third trial had finally ended and a verdict reached. This was printed on the one-year anniversary of Black Sunday. And what was the verdict? It surprised me. After nine hours of deliberation by the jury, Russell was acquitted. For my second additional history story of the day, I'm taking a headline from the Wichita Beacon out of Wichita, Kansas. And I'm sorry, but this story isn't any less gruesome and disturbing than the first story. In some ways, it's almost worse. This headline says, Says Father Killed Mother, Hid Corpse. I saw this story in multiple papers while I was browsing for additional history stories, and this story also takes place in Oklahoma. A wife had gone missing, and authorities feared the worst for her. Well, maybe she had gone missing. They couldn't be 100% sure about that fact. Let me back up a bit. Isabel Couch, a 24-year-old woman, hadn't been seen since March 19th, according to her neighbors, and they were starting to worry. Since this article was printed in mid-April, that meant almost a month had passed since anyone had seen her. But her husband insisted she was just fine, and that this wasn't the first time his wife had left him. In the past, she'd returned and he was confident that she'd return again. Mr. Couch was in his 40s, and there was almost a 20-year age difference between the pair. They'd been married for six years and had a five-year-old boy and a two-year-old boy. Mr. Couch was an unemployed oil-filled worker. The missing Isabel Couch came to the attention of the police when the five-year-old boy started talking to his neighbors. He told them that his father had, quote, killed his mother and thrown her body in a hole. When prompted for more detail, the boy said that his father had slit his mother's throat with a butcher's knife, cut her up into pieces, and thrown her in the hole of a tank car. The police hurried down to the train yard of the Sinclair Refining Company and began opening all of the tank train cars to look for a body inside. 
The five-year-old pointed out exactly where he remembered the crime taking place. But all the cars there were empty. But, remember, Isabel hadn't been seen for almost a month. Cars had come and gone, and the ones that were there in the train yard on the day of the police search weren't the same ones that had been there in the days following her last public appearance. If she really had been stuffed into a tank, her body could be anywhere, in any state by that point. When word started getting out about the search, other neighbors came forward and told authorities that the young boy had told them a similar story. The boy's father continued to insist that he didn't do anything and that his son liked to make up stories. Well, just to be on the safe side, the police took both sons and put them in a children's home until they could get to the bottom of the situation. Two days later, on April 17th, there was an end to the story printed in the newspaper. I found this one in the Marshall News Messenger out of Marshall, Texas. And I have to admit, I was shocked when I read the headline. It wasn't at all what I was expecting. It says, Hunt for body of woman ended when she is found alive. Yep, Isabel Couch wasn't dead. Her husband didn't slit her throat and stuff her inside an oil tank. Isabel sent a telegram to the police from Devil's Lake, North Dakota, the town where her parents lived, and one of the areas her husband said she might have gone. She told them that she was just fine and that she had no intention of coming back, which is pretty sad since it meant she was abandoning her two children. And considering the story, it seemed like at least one of those children was already pretty messed up. Anyway, the police immediately released Mr. Couch from jail. No word on if his kids were returned to him was given, or if they were, how much trouble the five-year-old boy was in after the story he'd told. For today's third and final additional history story, I'm taking an article from the Parsons Sun out of Parsons, Kansas. Now, the first thing that caught my eye was the picture accompanying this article. It's a picture of a woman in a hospital bed with one man holding her hand and another man leaning over her. The article was nothing more than an extra-long caption for the picture, but the headline sealed the deal for this being an additional history story. The headline says, Rasputin's Daughter Recovers. I immediately had to read it and look it up to see if the woman was a daughter of THE Rasputin, and she was. If you don't know, Gregory Rasputin was a well-known figure in Russia in the early 1900s. He called himself a holy man and claimed to be a healer. He also claimed he could predict the future. One of his biggest claims to fame was when he somehow managed to heal one of Tsar Nicholas II's children of hemophilia. After that, the Tsar and mostly his wife kept Rasputin around as an advisor of sorts, and he was a regular fixture in the palace. This made a lot of people nervous because they were worried about what political influence he had on the Tsar. Supposedly, he made a prediction that if he was ever murdered, the Tsar's entire family would meet the same fate. Well, in 1916, Rasputin was poisoned. And as I'm sure you know, two years later, the Tsar and the entire Romanov family was also assassinated. Now, Rasputin had a daughter named Maria and she grew up playing with the Romanov daughters, Olga, Tatiana, Maria, and Anastasia. The daughters were rarely allowed out of the palace, 
so they enjoyed spending time with Maria Rasputin, because she could tell them stories of life beyond those walls. Just before Russia fell, Alexandra Romanov gave Maria and her sister some money and pretty much told them to run for their lives. And they did. Maria soon married and had a couple of daughters herself. Her sister had died under mysterious circumstances. Her father had been assassinated, and her mother and brother had disappeared in the Soviet labor camp somewhere in Siberia. When Maria's husband died of tuberculosis, she knew she had to find a way to support herself and her daughters. This is where the already fascinating life of Maria Rasputin gets even more exciting. She knew that she had a famous last name, Rasputin, and that maybe she could use it to her advantage. She'd never danced before, ever, but that didn't matter, because she had the right name, and she soon became a cabaret dancer. She started traveling through Europe, doing more and more adventurous things, and using her name to sell it. Most famously, she became a lion tamer. According to one source, that's when her career really took off. She was sometimes billed in the circus as being able to perform magic over wild beasts, just like her father dominated men. And when an interviewer asked her if she was nervous to be in a cage with wild animals, she answered and said, Why not? I've been in a cage with Bolsheviks. Eventually, Maria made it to the United States, but she was only in this country for a few weeks before her life took another unexpected turn, and she ended up retiring from the circus. And that brings us to the picture and article in the April 15, 1935 newspaper. I'll read you exactly what the first sentence says. Maria Rasputin, daughter of the notorious Russian monk, is shown in a hospital in Peru, Indiana, where she is recovering after being clawed by a circus bear she was training. Yep, Maria was mauled by a circus bear. But she wasn't done living yet. Maria recovered, although scarred, I'm sure, and couldn't really work in the circus anymore. But she did become a citizen of the United States. She worked in the factory as a riveter during World War II, and during the Red Scare of the 1950s, she was often accused of being a communist. So, she wrote a letter to the LA Times. It said, I am constantly being persecuted and branded a communist due to my name being Maria Rasputin, daughter of Gregory Rasputin, known as the Mad Monk of Russia. I left Russia 28 years ago and am now a naturalized American citizen, for which privilege I thank God every night. As I love the United States of America from the bottom of my heart, I wish to announce publicly that I am not a communist. For the remainder of her life, Maria lived off of social security benefits, money she earned from babysitting, and money she earned from teaching Russian. She also wrote several books about her father in an attempt to clear his name of misinformation. Maria died in 1977 and was buried in Los Angeles bringing an end to her wild and crazy life. But, before I end her story, I want to tell you one more thing. Maria might not have really been Gregory Rasputin's daughter. You see, when the Romanovs died, many women came forward claiming to be the missing daughter Anastasia. Other women came forward claiming to be Rasputin's daughters. Some people believe that Maria Rasputin was a fake, and that the performer's greatest performance 
wasn't cabaret dancing or lion taming, but rather convincing the world that she was the daughter of someone famous. Hmm. We might never know the answer to this one. Today's advertisement of the day comes from another one of our Dust Bowl states, New Mexico. Specifically, the Daily Current Argus out of Carlsbad, New Mexico. This advertisement is for a roaster toaster. It seems to be an all-in-one contraption of some sort that can heat your coffee pot on top of a heating element while cooking eggs and toast underneath. The ad says, it roasts as it toasts, as it fries, as it cooks. Back in 1935, you could have gotten one of these handy-dandy contraptions for yourself for a low price of $1.98. Friends, thanks for joining me today. I love all eras of history, but since I've started doing this podcast, I've discovered that I have a special love for the 1930s and the hardworking folks who endured that decade, so I'm always a bit excited when I get to cover a famous date from then. Next week, we'll be jumping forward in time to a date that's a bit more modern, or at least closer to modern days than the 1930s. It's a day I remember well, even though I was pretty young, and I'm sure most of you will remember it clearly too. Don't forget to check out the additional history headlines you probably miss Facebook group, and if you're curious about any of my sources, you can find those in the episode descriptions of whatever podcast platform you're using. And, as always, I'll talk to you later.